Locked on NBA, Last Dance Post Game Show Edition. Episodes 5 and 6 are in the book. I'm David Locke. Glad to be with you. I host Locked on Jazz as well as Thursday Locked on NBA. Matt Peck of Locked on Bulls, who is the only team that's actually had real news and now has a documentary since uh, COVID day is, is rolling. He joins us, Alex Wolf. From Locked On, Knicks takes his first appearance with us. John Corrales is back. Locked On, Celtics and Doug Branson. Locked On, Hornets. So five-person roundtable about night episode five and six. And the reoccurring theme, Jordan's insane competitiveness just in every moment. Like, it's they want to have different storylines in this, and there are numerous ones, but whether it's covering up Reebok, whether it's beating Charles, whether it's gambling, whether whatever it is, the story, what's Will Purdue kind of telling, I have your money in my pocket uh, stories. Matt, the competitiveness of Jordan is still the overriding theme of this whole thing. Absolutely, David, and thanks to y'all for uh, for for chatting. Uh, it's a wonderful time as a Bulls fan right now. Um, Will Perdue is actually a colleague of mine. Uh, you know, he does pre and post game shows for NBC Sports Chicago. My Bulls Outsiders late night post game show follows his. So I've had the privilege of, of getting a lot of stories of the old days from Will Perdue over the last couple of years. And I, I had heard that story before that we, that we got from Will in the doc tonight about I want your money in my pocket. And it doesn't matter if it's a dollar. It doesn't matter if it's 10 grand. And I think so much of MJ's character was summed up in a couple beautiful parts of this documentary, which was MJ saying, do I have a gambling problem? No, I have a competition <laughs> problem. And then we get shots of him gambling in this silly game where he's with United Center security guards just throwing quarters at a wall. Like, that is the insane level of competitiveness that always lived within MJ. Hey, man, may, let's not... Let's not uh disparage pitching quarters pitching quarters is a fun game and i bet you i'd win that game uh that guy that that uh security guard was like the star of this whole thing he's like oh, the, the one with the perm of the whole thing i want yeah. i want an hour-long documentary on that guy <laughs> give me the, that the pure levels of swag to pull out the shrug on mj is pretty insane <laughs> to me i think <laughs> especially a year after he had just oh, done yeah. it i mean it's pretty pretty ballsy stuff there. There's an, right. I liked BJ Armstrong when he said Jordan wasn't playing basketball. He was trying to figure out how to win the game. Um, I think that is a great line that kind of sums up what Jordan was doing on the floor, especially towards the end, that he wasn't just going out there and playing basketball and letting the game come to him or whatever. He was out there trying to figure out how, how are we going to win this game? How are we going to do it? Between that and uh, Magic saying, in, even in the shooting contest, he didn't, he didn't just want to beat you. He wanted to step on your neck. He wanted to embarrass you. Like those, those two lines, I think, sum up what we're talking about right here the best. Can I add the third one onto that, which is Barkley talking about, I played as well as I could, but Michael's the one guy out there that could just make sure he beat you. I agree with you, John. As uh, The perm is the takeaway of the whole the whole event there's no question we're all like the memes are going to be everywhere but the idea that guy that you know we all use I, I get asked as a jazz fan all the time like do you one if they'd called the offensive foul on Jordan on Brian Russell which we'll get probably in episode nine and ten of this you know what do you think happens and I'm like I think the Bulls winning game seven um because Kind of the B.J. Armstrong point, the Charles Arkley, Oakley point, the or Charles Barkley point. Michael just found a way to win these games. Yeah, I, th I think that's always been the through line for MJ's career, and it's always because he has found some motivation. Some slight that was probably not even meant to be a slight that he takes as a slight. It's basically the lecture he gave us in his Hall of Fame induction speech. They caught a lot of people off guard. And it's the same stuff that said, you know, MJ was like, ah, people might not like me after watching this doc. And those of us who lived through it and paid attention were like, no, this is the dude you've always been. Where uh, and, and the 92 finals, when you're going up against Clyde Drexler and, and the Blazers is another great example where a lot of people were starting to put Drexler on that level with MJ. You know, it's kind of like the, the bird Celtics and the Lakers' magic uh, were over, and MJ was the new thing. So who's the new person challenging MJ? And everybody said that was Clyde, and everybody made the argument, well, like, well, yeah, like, MJ's 
M- MJ's MJ, but Clyde's maybe got him beaten a couple cl- categories, including MJ's never been a great three-point shooter. Clyde can rain threes. So what does MJ do in his first game in the finals against Clyde? He sets an NBA finals record by drilling six threes and a half. That was MJ. Yeah, and to to Matt's point, I think this documentary is really fueling the mythology of of Michael Jordan as sort of out of the womb a competitive being. Uh, I wonder if there is something missing here, if there is a piece of his life story that we aren't quite accessing uh, that may explain some of that competitive competitiveness, or if indeed he is just sort of always in every conceivable multiverse was always a competitive being. There's always something that triggers this, though. I mean, there, there's there's competitiveness, but this is next level stuff. And and I've said this a million times, but this is the next level stuff that you need to be that that turns Jordan into Jordan, that turned Magic into Magic and Bird into Bird, and all of that. Um, th- there has to be some trigger, whether it was not making uh, the team when he was in high school and or, or, or whatever. There, there's something that deep down, whatever, maybe a, something his dad said or something that somebody said to him or, or some kind of slight that he, there's always one. There's a, there's a, a big bang that makes people think like, okay, this is, oh, oh is that, is that how it's going to be? All right, I'll show you. And then I'll show the next guy. And then I'll show the next guy. Uh, the the thing about Jordan is when most people stop, he doesn't stop. And that goes back to the magic line. Like when you win, you win or whatever. He Jordan was like not content to, to just beat you. He had to kill you. Um, there, there yeah. has, there has to be a trigger. Ask somewhere. Tony, ask Tony Kukoc about that. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> I came out of this feeling great. so bad for Kukoc. I mean, dude, Tony's such a nice guy, and he just got way in 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 over his head in a situation that he had no idea was coming. Um, and obviously, his, ex- his not excuses, but his reasons for not going over to the NBA right away. You know, the Bulls drafted him in '90, um, and then he didn't come over until '93. But the uh, you know the, the fact that he's living in a war torn country, and it's like, well, I, I didn't want to leave while all this was going on, and also they were paying me much better than they would have paid me in the NBA to be playing in Europe where I was playing in Europe. But that's another one. And so many of them are just Michael's immediate and everlasting disdain for Kraus, which we're getting plenty of through this documentary. Um, <laughs> Tony Kukoc, it's like MJ and Scotty have both been on record, including in the docs that we watched tonight, saying it's nothing personal against Tony. But to us, it was like that was Jerry Kraus out there. It may have looked like Tony Kukoc, but that was us going out there to kick Tony to, to kick Jerry Krause's butt. And then even like Tony Kukoc proved himself to be a hell of a player. You know, sixth man of the year on the arguably greatest team of all time. Big piece of the second three-peat. But even like a player like Dan Marley, when we get to the 93 po- finals uh, part of the episodes, and it's like, oh, yeah, J- you know, Jerry Krause really liked Dan Marley, really high on Dan Marley. It's like, MJ, no one is saying that, uh, that Dan Marley is on your level, but like that's how we took it. Yeah, that kind of goes to, I think it was uh, David Aldridge said during the the show at one point that, you know, Jordan didn't necessarily always even need something to motivate him. He just sometimes made things up to motivate himself. You know, he he would take the smallest thing and blow it into a giant thing. And, like, that's why, I mean, it, it hit extra hard particularly from my Knicks perspective to see, you know, he got the actual ammunition for once the whole Atlantic city, you know, scandal and uh, basically eviscerated the Knicks for four straight games. And that was him with real motivation, not even just a, <laughs> a, uh, you know, perceived slight by somebody. That was a real slight of people going in a little too hard on him uh, in the media for something that ultimately, I mean, uh, Probably wasn't a huge deal, but, you know, to the point that the documentary made, it was really just it was a time when Jordan was like a god. And, you know, at a certain point, everybody tries to tear you down when you reach those levels of highs. All right. Alex's first point there is one I want to get back to because it gave me a funny thought during this documentary, during episodes five and six. Today's show, Locked on NBA postgame show to the last dance is brought to you by Built Bar. 
Built Bar is redoing what you think of energy and protein bars. The energy and protein bar we're most commonly used to is the one where you better grab a glass of water so that you can get that grainy, dusty flavor down. Nope, this is unbelievable. The taste of Built Bar, I almost got, guys, I'd almost call it marshmallowy. I mean, it's got such an incredible texture and taste to it. Yeah, that's a good description. I've been wondering how to describe it. That's that's the best way to put it. Uh, almost almost like nougat, am I right? Almost like a Three Musketeers in a way. Oh yeah, Alex, yeah, the Three sorta. Musketeers call on the Built Bar. I went. I had the uh, I had the mint chocolate cream today during my round of golf. It didn't help my swing, but it did taste good. <laughs> yeah, you you didn't lose like a hundred grand on the golf course though, right? So if you d- enjoying a delicious Built Bar and not losing a hundred grand, that's a good day. No, but Michael belongs to the club up the street from me, so I probably could if I wanted to, right? Like, <laughs> Exactly. I don't think he let me pay him in Built Bars. Built Bars amazing. The flavor's amazing. And then the numbers on it are mind-blowing. So the bar I had today was the mint chocolate cream, 110 calories, 15 grams of protein, and f- only 4 grams of sugar. When you start comparing that to probably the most pe- popular men's out there, it's a third of the calories about. It is... Goes from 38 carbs and instead Built Bar only has five. Instead of 21 sugar grams, you've got four. It's perfect health, great taste. It's Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com, promo code locked on, and you get $10 off your first box. And the really cool thing is you can actually get the mix box with all the super flavors, or you can build your own box. That's it. BuiltBar.com. Use the promo code locked on. Continuing Locked on NBA, Last Dance Post Game Show, brought to you by Built Bar. All right, Alex touched on this. I had it in my notes. I wanted to get to it. I was going to hold it for the third kind of part of our conversation, but I want to get to it. All right, Jordan's upset because Marley, as Matt points out, Marley's supposed to be as good as him. He's mad at Drexler because he's been mentioned the same sentence. He's mad at Barkley. Because Barkley won the MVP that year. He's mad at Tony Kukoc for absolutely no reason. At any point, does the fact that all of these things he's upset about going on make you think that Jerry Krause might not be the devil that he's portrayed to be, that, but that Michael needed a common enemy at all times, and so he picked Krause? Is it, I, I want to throw a theory out there. Is it possible that... Phil Jackson in his time with the Knicks took some tricks from Jerry Krause's book because he had an awful lot of disdain coming for him, to him from the Knicks locker room. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if maybe uh, as much as Phil wasn't a huge Krause fan either based off this documentary, maybe there was a little something there as well. But yeah, maybe Krause really wasn't quite the the devil that he was portrayed to be. As you said, David, maybe he really is just kind of you know, he just was a GM doing GM things, but Michael Jordan took that as well. He doesn't want me here because uh, he's interested in other players, and he should only he should only need me, Scotty, and whoever our third guy is at this moment, and that's it. And he shouldn't have eyes for these other guys. He sees to be you know future talents when he has Michael Jordan right in front of him. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just a, a matter of two two people with egos. Obviously, MJ has every right to have the ego that he had. Uh, and in his own right, Jerry Krause was an incredibly talented executive, uh, you know, excelled in scouting in both Major League Baseball and then in the NBA. And, he, you know, he found the gem that was Tony Kukoc and he drafted Scotty and he, uh, you know, drafted Horace and he did all these things to build both of these three P teams in the span of eight years. And it's impressive and he deserves credit for it. But in one of the uh, parts of the doc that we saw tonight and the Bulls are celebrating champagne, Larry O'Brien trophy, you know, Bob Costas there in 92, Jerry Krause is on that stage with all those players and Phil and talking about organizations, organizations, organizations that, I mean, that bugged MJ more than anything. And you, you heard him say that again in his hall of fame induction speech where he, where he was like, you know, I don't know if Jerry's here. I didn't invite him. Like it bugged the crap out of MJ to hear that, Somebody else is trying to take credit for his achievements. But they, they're they the same. They're doing the exact same thing. Jordan, right. 
Jordan's pissed off because he's not getting the credit. Krause is pissed off because he's not getting the credit. They're both trying to claim credit for something that they both do. Does Jordan win without the moves that Krause makes? I mean, he's still Jordan, so yeah, maybe he wins, but does he win six? I don't know if he wins six. A lot of those moves that Krause made were key moves that helped fuel six championships. Does Krause build six championship teams without Michael Jordan? No, probably not. They kind of needed each other to do what each other did. The, the one thing, whether intentionally or not, having that common enemy is, is either a stroke of genius or an unintentional stroke of genius. But to have the team unified around a hatred for somebody there uh, and, and to be able to deflect a lot of the blame for maybe things that could have could have torn a team apart internally and kind of push it onto a front office guy I thought I thought that that's an underrated part of of how this kind of was held together uh, that they hated Kraus kind of Jordan saw everybody in the world as competition except for Scottie Pippen, and they were both unified in their hatred for Krause. Right, and I wonder how much, to to an extent, that Jerry Krause played into that villain role, right? I, I don't think that there's any denying that Michael Jordan created a villain in in Jerry Krause in order to motivate himself, and then and then that spread to the rest of the team. I mean, there are plenty of clips in this so far of not just Michael Jordan getting on Jerry Krause, but other members of the team as well. But I wonder by the end, uh, Matt, and you could probably shed a little bit more light on this, like how much Jerry leaned into that persona. And he knew by the end, Krause knew that he had sort of control of the situation and, and was was going to push this breakup, whether people liked it or not, and how much he sort of fed into that uh, GM as villain role. Yeah, I think maybe at, at a certain point, Jerry just kind of accepted the the situation. Um, but I do know that that it di- it did still bug him well after the fact. You know, he stuck around for five extra years after the dynasty broke up. Tried to to relaunch the Bulls with you know failed experiments. You know, Elton Brand and then the the Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry experiment. None of it worked. And so in '03, the Bulls moved on. Um, and even all those years later, you know, Jerry Krause unfortunately um, passed away a couple years ago, and then was uh, you know posthumously inducted into the the Basketball Hall of Fame deservedly so so in my opinion but um he started to write a memoir in his later life and uh it it went unfinished we've actually published a few excerpts of it uh from our bulls insider casey johnson at nbc sports chicago um but he clearly was bugged by it and he you know uh he had a different interpretation of how things went and he thought that he was misquoted a lot he thought that he was misunderstood um but in in some ways maybe he did also understand like hey if if this team needs a punching bag, if this team needs a villain to 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 unite together against, um, I I guess I'll be that guy. But I absolutely do not think that that is a role that Jerry Krause ever uh, loved playing. I'm gonna throw the other scenario out there. That was Matt Peck locked on Bulls. You're hearing there. Previously, you heard Doug Branson locked on Hornets. John Corrales locked on Celtics, and Alex Wolf locked on Knicks. I'll give you the next theory on this one. Who says Phil didn't just create it? Exactly what John Corrales is talking about, which is create the common devil being up in the front office for all of us to bond against. And that's how you hold a team together through all the thick and thin of everything else and keep it together for all these years is have Jerry Krause be the guy that is against you. I, it's, it's certainly conceivable to give Phil credit for that. Um, and it's funny because, I mean, fast forward 20 years or so and Tom Thibodeau did the exact same thing to MJ's teammate, John Paxson, when John Paxson moved up to the C-suite for the Bulls. Um, I think Phil was a genius in so many ways and he knew as the puppet master, the Zen master, whatever you want to call him, how to get the best out of everybody. Um, And, you know, I I think uh, if you're going to give anybody in this uh, dynasty story more credit than maybe they don't have already, Everybody knows MJ's the GOAT. Everybody talks, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, Scottie Pippen was so underappreciated. And then even other players, like people watching tonight being like, dude, Prime Barkley was a beast. So it's fun to see that (laughs) stuff. But in my opinion, Phil Jackson, I mean, the dude just won. And he he, he won five more times. 
with, with Kobe's Lakers. Like the guy just, I, I don't think Phil Jackson gets enough credit as, as crazy as that might sound, because of course he's, he's going to go down as one of the best NBA head coaches of all time. He knew how to play. He was playing four dimensional chess while Jerry and MJ and their egos were playing checkers. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly like I can see how now when you're watching these guys and you start to see a little bit more of what makes them tick, I can see how Phil Jackson would learn how to, to press all of those buttons. I mean, you have the element of like the Dan Marley thing. Where did, where did Jordan hear the Dan Marley thing? Did Phil say, hey, you know, Jerry really loves this Dan Marley. I mean, he thinks he's an amazing defender. Like that line alone, what I just said, if, if that was the exact quote, Jordan, you can, you can see the fire burning inside him. Like, oh, 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 okay. So he thinks that? I'll show you. That's all you have to do is say, oh, yeah, Jerry really likes this guy. He thinks this guy's like the future of the NBA. Boom, done. He's toast. Next. So I, I could see that being being a motivational tool. I don't think any motivational tools were out of bounds when it came to Phil. I, I like the idea of Phil Jackson as just like personality arsonist. He just walks around the facility just setting little <laughs> little fires in each of the players. I like that description. Personality arsonist. I want that like as a lower third during the documentary. Just show <laughs> Phil and as a lower third have pure personality arsonist. Right. Just, just like Barack Obama's was former Chicago resident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Kobe the the Kobe ones at Madison Square Garden on his final night were about like the ultimate and cool. Are we there? That that's just the ultimate and cool. You mean the Jordan ones? What did I say? Kobe ones? Sorry. Yes. The uh, well, that will be our next conversation. The Jordan ones uh, by uh, Jordan in his final night at Madison Square Garden is the ultimate and cool. Yeah, I, I wondered if he was exaggerating that story a little bit about how, you know, like he could feel that his shoes were filling up at blood at halftime, but he was playing well, so he didn't want to take him out. And then he took his shoes off at the end of the game and his socks were just red with blood. I mean, I mean it's, pro- it's, it's MJ. I'm not going to accuse him of exaggerating that story, but like, dude, just, just change the shoes. If you're bleeding profusely from your feet in the middle of a game, like that, that's just bonkers. All, all hey, for look. a symbolism of it started here at the garden with these Jordan ones. It's going to end here at the garden. Like, come on, man. Hey, swag sleeps for no man. You know, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta just play through the pain. That's what it takes when you're, uh, you know, when you're trying to pull off a good look on the court. I got to say, as a, as a sneakerhead, that uh, that definitely resonated with me. That's that's the type of move that I would probably make if I was the best basketball player in the you know, in the whole entire world ever and had my own sneaker line and was coming to a close, I probably would have gone back to the start too. I thought it was pretty cool though. I mean, I'd honestly never known that, you know, as a Knicks fan or a basketball fan that he busted out the Jordan ones for the final time at the garden. And I think it sounds like that's the only team that he gave that uh, treatment to. So what an I honor, like Alex I guess. just made himself the greatest <laughs> basketball player in the world with his own signature shoe and ex- got the uh, experience of it. I thought that was impressive by Alex right there. <laughs> shout out to D- dolores jordan because yes the air jordans do not happen That's without exactly a mother giving say. her son some solid advice hey mj go take the meeting listen to what they have to say well and you know what if we want to talk about the um the little faux pas of the kobe ones you know if jordan had signed with adidas we all saw what they did to kobe with his sneakers Ugh putting out those cinder blocks at one point. So yeah, probably, probably a really good thing that ultimately uh, Jordan's mom made him go to that meeting with Nike and uh, got him set up with the, the Jordan air Jordan line rather than whatever Adidas would have come up with at that time. I'm also a sneaker guy. No, I'm also a sneaker guy. I got four Jordan ones sitting here somewhere. Uh, the fact that his mom mommed her way uh, into changing the course of corporate history. Like Jordan, Jordan would have just gone with Adidas because he loved Adidas at that point. Imagine Adidas getting Jordan and how that changes Nike's trajectory. Nike doesn't have its influence. 
what has Nike used all of its influence to do in college basketball? What has Nike used its influence to do on the secondary market? Stock X probably doesn't exist or not like it does now. All of these little dominoes, all because mom was like, come on, Mike, just go, just go hear what they got to say. Well, even that's wild to me. It's wild. In the doc, I believe they also said that Adidas wasn't even going to do a signature shoe for Jordan. Um, so he wouldn't have even had, I mean, presumably for at least a couple of years, would have just been wearing whatever their basketball model was. And maybe they don't even do the, uh, you know, the, the band color scheme or the, the crazy marketing or anything like that. Maybe what's on his feet is just no big deal at all, you know, and he just kind of plays in whatever, you know, and, and then there's not this whole movement, you know, as you said, of, of, you know, sneaker culture as it is today, which was basically dictated by Jordan during the 90s. Yeah. And the, like the numbers that that they were talking about, like Nike's goals for what they wanted to sell in that you know first year of the Jordans, and they you know they wanted like three million dollars in sales of the Jordan ones, and they made a hundred and twenty six like that. That is nuts for and as several people in the doc pointed out, for a rookie, a rookie pushing shoes like that. I mean, it it is why Nike and the Jordan brand is what it is today. What what an insane start out of the gate. And then think about now Jordan goes to Nike. Nike does not have a huge footprint, pardon the pun, in the NBA. They are track shoes. Uh, I'm just drawn to that as New Balance comes into today's NBA and they have Kawhi and they're starting to try to get more New Balance guys. But the band color scheme, that's brilliant marketing. The the thing that drove Nike and Jordan was the marketing. Air Jordan was a just brilliant marketing scheme. And I just watch what they did with Jordan and what New Balance is not doing with Kawhi. I, I think it's just now that you know kind of a little bit more of the backstory you can you can contrast what nike did to get jordan and pump jordan up and what like new balance is not doing with Kawhi. it's just a real interesting dichotomy now that i see it and his insane competitiveness leaked into his sort of fanaticism about brand purism right he's as fanatical about winning games as he is about being uh, a a nike uh, brand ambassador there's a story uh, that uh, Jordan, as owner of the Charlotte Hornets, he scrimmaged with them one day when when Adidas was still making all of the gear for uh, uh, for game day, and so he had some uh, warm up gear on, and he covered up the Adidas logo while he was warming up with the Charlotte Hornets because he didn't yeah, want yeah. you know he didn't want to wear anything or show that he was wearing anything. Uh, he's not going to be one of these guys that's caught with it, like one of these guys that works for Apple and gets caught uh, w- you know with an Android phone. He's not going to be one of those guys. We got another example of that in the doc um, when they were talking about the Dream Team, and he's up there accepting his gold medal, and he cleverly drapes an American flag over the Reebok part of the label on his USA team warm-up, and it's like, well, you know, nobody's going to get mad at you for, for you know, it's, it's not, you're, oh, I'm just covering up a brand label. It's like, well, I'm, I'm a gold medal, uh, you know, Olympian, and uh, I've got the American fra- flag draped over my shoulder. I dare you to say something about that. That's the untouched story of this documentary so far, at least in my book. We'll touch back on that as we continue. We'll also uh, touch on uh, the Kobe Bryant relationship. Anthony Irwin, Locked on Lakers, will join the party here as we keep expanding out in our postgame show and get his thoughts on things as well. And there's more to discuss inside of this. All coming up as we continue. Brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com. With the promo code Locked On, you get $10 off your first box. It's the Locked On NBA postgame show to episodes five and six of The Last Dance. Anthony Irwin joins us now. Anthony Irwin now along with John Corrales of Locked on Celtics, Matt Peck, Locked on Bulls, Alex Wolf, Locked on Knicks, and Doug Branson of Locked on Hornets. Uh, there's a bunch of different topics to get into. The Kobe relationship we'll, we'll touch on here before we're, we're done. Republicans buy shoes to aspect of things. I've got an interesting angle on that I'll share with you guys. Uh, but I actually want to start where we ended that last conversation I actually think the the American flag over the Reebok logo is the beginning of like what we know now as the player movement. Like 
the league's now run by players, right? The idea that Jerry Krause could basically run Phil out uh, when Jordan wants him back could never happen, I don't think, in today's day and age. I actually think this all starts with Jordan exerting his power. Three other players did it as well, or two other players did it as well during that time period. In that setting, at the Olympics, that big a moment that he had enough guts to throw that over and nobody could do anything about it was the beginning of what we now know as the kind of the, the strength of the players 30 years later. My, my thing there is like Jordan was eventually chased out of the league by Jerry Krause being such a moron with, with how he handled Phil Jackson. I, I think there's a lot to it, you know, because you had such a collection of, of stars and I think they all kind of came together and recognized, holy crap, look at the event that we are. We should be able to wield more power. Um, and, then, and then it just so happened that the league at that time wasn't quite ready for it. Um, and, and eventually it cost us all a couple prime years of, of Jordan's career. Well, this is also the time of the league where it's Jordan is the unequivocal star and the league has been now saved by star players. And it's been marketed by David Stern as a star player league. We get the, you know, the single player and, you know, it's Jordan in the bulls versus, uh, Patrick Ewing in the Knicks. It's once the league started marketing these guys as individuals, that that was planting the seed for player empowerment. This right there with a flag and and basically thumbing your nose at a sponsor and facing no repercussions. That's the seed sprouting. That's everything that they've tried to build is now busting through and moving forward once the league gets profitable to a point where these guys are making so much money and you've invested so much in them that you you have no choice but to kind of cater to their whims. Can we also take a second to marvel at the brilliant chess move that putting the American flag over the over the Reebok uh, logo was because it's not like Reebok can complain. Hey, uh, please move the flag so so that we can show our logo at the Olympics. It was so smart by Michael. That was incredible. Yeah, and, and I think that like you know when you talk about the the this development this this building towards it being a, a player empowerment kind of league, it's kind of crazy to think that that's happening simultaneously to MJ getting sick of being the face of that league. It's like players are becoming more empowered. It's a, it's a league that is being made about its stars and how marketable its stars are. And its most marketable star, as we saw in these episodes tonight, is getting so sick and tired of everything that goes along with that. And that's that's just the the, you know, the... The rewind to 93. We're not even at 98. So I, I that's why I'm not at all surprised that, that MJ, uh, and I don't believe for a second that it was a, an unofficial suspension for two years from David Stern. I've never bought that conspiracy theory. I think MJ got burnt out. And it's crazy that he built up with his own power and his competi- competitiveness and his amazing skill and charisma how powerful this, this league became and how play- powerful the players in the league became. And at the same time, it just started driving him crazy. Other than Corrales, I might be the only one who's old enough. I covered MJ, so uh, I I was there for this, and I was watching this with my daughter and saying to her, like, before they did that whole sequence, like, I can't explain to you what this was like. Like, every time he came to town, it was just the world stopped and the madness began, and I, and I was like, well, it might be the Beatles. It might be the Rolling Stones. She's like, well, I don't really know what those are either. I was like, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> but I didn't um, – it, 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 the, the magnitude of Michael, uh, they're trying to portray it. I think they're doing a good job. And actually having saying, having lived through it, I'm not sure they're, that they've, they've grasped it all. Like that's the best way I could describe for those who are listening to this podcast that weren't – with us or weren't fans in 91, 92, like most of our players in the league, right? Our Kobe generation, not Michael generation. So they, they didn't live through it. Like it's bigger. My memory of it is bigger than what we're even seeing. Now I covered the 96, 97 finals and the 97, 98 finals. I mean, it was just, that was the peak of it. And it was insane. 
it, it, it's actually kind of ironic, right? That this is coming out at a time where there is no other real stimuli to to get our attention, and that was kind of the vacuum that existed around Michael at that time. It felt like nothing else was going on when he was playing. Jen asked me, you know, hey, you got to see him not live, but you got to watch his games while they were going on. I said, yeah, you and beyond NBC, everybody knows the 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 music to it because. Michael built that thing and it was it was appointment TV every single weekend and it was it's something we haven't quite seen since and I don't think we'll ever see quite ever again because of the amount of other noise there is going on elsewhere if you aren't really into basketball the way that you know sports fans might not always be into basketball that was also an era where where Jordan he didn't really have a true contemporary he so bird and magic were like contemporaries they they drove each other and they were the faces of the league uh nowadays you you know you have lebron but you still have durant you have you have Kawhi. you have the guys like where you can actually have a discussion if you you know had to win a series which guy would you start it with like you, you can actually have a a little bit of a discussion but back then like that moment uh when Ahmad Rashad, they're in Barcelona, and he says, so Mike, uh, last shot, who's taking it? And Jordan's like, <laughs> me. Like, that's the answer. That That's the answer. Like, of course. Ahmad knew the answer, too. <laughs> right. But no one no one is as, as big as Jordan in the league. There wasn't even anyone close. No, I mean, I, I don't think so. But, you know, we mentioned earlier, the year after that, you know, Barkley won the MVP, not MJ. And on that 92 Dream Team, Barkley was the best player. Like, obviously, they were a dominant team across the board, and it's like a team fully comprised of Hall of Famers, but Barkley drove that Dream Team. Uh, and I think a lot of people forget about that fact. So, yes, I agree in the sense that, like, there are no contemporaries because a lot of people who watched MJ play say it's MJ and then it's everybody else and it's not close. Um, there are contemporaries because they played with him on that I, Dream I'm, Team team. I'm fighting team. you on this one, Peck. I'm fighting you. All right, if we list the top 10 players in the NBA, Jordan's in it, and there's not another player from that era in the top 10 players in the NBA. And uh, I'm not sure there's one in the top 20, right? Like the two, the next two best players in that era were Barkley got stole an MVP from him and Malone stole two MVPs from him. Are you putting mm-hmm. Barkley or Carl Malone in the top 20 players of all time? Uh, that's tough. I mean, I, I, I'd say for, they're both on the fringe of that. So they're that good, probably, the, probably and, just and outside Patrick it. Ewing's not, Patrick Ewing's the other one. Like, Ewing is the one that I was going to get to next. But I mean, all three of them are championship lists in the sense of probably because of Jordan. But I'm also going to say like that's not like which like like. But but do you understand like the reason they aren't as heavily uh, regarded and esteemed is because they all have one thing in common: they lost to MJ. Like if if Ewing had a ring or two, if Barkling had a ring or two, if Drex had a ring, or, like maybe you're talking about. Th- those careers in a different light. Maybe you do refer to them as guys who are, you know, top 20, top 30 all-time players. Would we uh, Would we maybe put Hakeem Olajuwon in the top 20? I, I think that's maybe the one guy you could really argue. Yeah, 100%. I think Olajuwon answered the question the matches brought up. They had two years to go get their titles, and they didn't do it. Olajuwon knocked Malone out in the first round of the playoffs and knocked Barkley out in a different in a different stage in that one. So I, I, I'm with... Alex on that one. I think Elijah one's the next best player of that era. Uh, and David Robinson's probably the third best player with Malone, Barkley, and Ewing all in the next grouping. I, I think it's also interesting because Pippen could have technically maybe filled that void a little bit too, and he was on the same team. And then the, this was also kind of the genius of, of Michael was that he would go out of his way to – torch Dan Marley or torch Tony Kukoc in an Olympics, anybody that he saw as a potential threat, he nipped it in the bud early. And, and that conversation was over quickly. Uh, I I do think, you know, the caliber of, of those players was kind of lacking, but, but Michael made sure everybody knew that there was, there was, there was Michael, a giant gap. And then whoever wanted to say they were the second best player in the league. It's a fascinating debate that Matt brings up of is the gap just because Jordan took all the oxygen in the room or because there was a gap? Can it be both? 
the deep philosopher. I mean, <laughs> no, but I mean, it's it's always somewhat both. I mean, you can say that it proves my point uh, that he had no contemporary. If he if he truly did, then he wouldn't have been able to take the air out of the room. You know, he would have gotten challenged. It, it, it would have been, again, I go back to Bird and Magic. They would have had their moments against each other. You know, they would have been battles. So it, it's Jordan, Jordan won every battle. It, Barkley couldn't do it. Malone couldn't do it. No one could do it until he was gone. And so that's, that's why I think there, Yes, there are Hall of Fame players. There are great players. Some of my favorite players. Like I loved Charles Barkley, but the the difference between Barkley and what Jordan could do and will himself to do was just different. Like Barkley dominated for sure, um, but Jordan could just take it to a different level that didn't exist in most other players. I'd say almost every other player in the league. Uh, when he was playing and in his, at his best, and you just you don't have that in in any other era except for maybe you you got to go back to the '60s and Bill Russell, um, and that's such a different league that it, it's it's hard to even make that comparison. And was was Jordan fortunate to an extent that his major contemporaries, the guys that we've been arguing here, Hakeem, Barkley. Um, Malone, they weren't playing his position. I mean, they weren't matching up with him one-on-one, possession after possession. So he, you know, he was shooting, you know, he was getting these big moments over Elo and, you know, and And, Byron Russell. And and John Starks. Right, Starks. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a certain aspect uh, there to his uh, his legacy. All right, two more topics I want to discuss before, two more topics I want to discuss before we wrap this up. Uh, one of them's maybe personal because I'll share. In 1990, uh, I worked on the Harvey Gantt campaign, um, so it would have been really nice if someone had said something instead of allowing a white supremacist racist to win another election in North Carolina. Um, not that that uh, scar is still real for me 30 years later, but what do we think about the fact that Jordan just completely ducked that aspect of the res- responsibility of his... And I'll start with the North Carolina guy, Doug Branson. I mean, it's obviously, it's always going to be a troubling part of Jordan's legacy. And he, even as owner of the Charlotte Hornets, I think he's done what is uh, necessary, uh, but not, he doesn't necessarily go above and beyond what is necessary. Um, you know, I think back to uh, to the riots, to HB2 that happened in Charlotte while, while he's been owner of the Charlotte Hornets. And he certainly has... Um, come out and said the right things and, and, and done some, some good things in, in both of those cases. Uh, but I don't think anyone would ever accuse him of going above and beyond in either of those situations. So I think that's always been a part of his legacy, but I think part of it's unfair too. I mean, I, I think we know that the, the quote about, uh, you know, Republicans buying shoes, that there is some mythology around that quote, just as much as we build this positive mythology around, uh, Jordan, I think that there's some some negative mythology around that as well. I think he is, I think he's just a stone cold capitalist, and uh, he doesn't uh, ascribe uh, similar passions uh, to to other things that he does. Um, you know, money, power, and winning. Yeah, um, I, I I agree with that that second part of Doug's thought there. Um, and, you know, David, I, I would even say that, that the way you phrased it, ducking that responsibility is unfair. Well, like who said it was a responsibility of professional athletes to become advocates and endorsers of political campaigns? That's, you know, I didn't sign up for that. Obviously, as a professional athlete and one of the best and most famous of them, People want your opinion on a lot of things. People bug you and shove microphones in your face all day, every day. And yes, because it was his home state where the Senate race was happening and the like hotly contested, uh, you know, um, campaign between a, you know, up and coming African-American Democrat and a, you know, as, as you phrased it, David, I can't do better, so I won't try um, the incumbent who clearly like. If you're going to speak up at some point, even if you are an athlete who doesn't like to get involved in politics, then this would be the opportunity to do so. 
But in the in the documentary, MJ said, "Hey, you know, I I didn't feel like it was my place. I didn't feel like I knew enough about this to speak on it, and I respect that. If you don't know enough about something." Don't open your mouth. How how recently have we seen the current face of the league, LeBron James, deal with foot-in-mouth things when it comes to things like the, the China controversy that seems like a lifetime ago now? But it's like, if I don't feel confident speaking on this, I'm not going to speak on it. And screw you for telling me that that is somehow my responsibility. I'm a basketball player. Yeah, but you don't have it, – it's different for Michael Jordan. You don't have – guys that are that influential um come along all that often in in the black community you the at that point that was such a flashpoint and, and i i say all this agreeing with your point like he's well within his rights to say i don't want to be political i don't want to do this this is not who i am i don't like it i'm not going to do it that's obviously well within his rights but for a young black man in the you know in 1990 where you have such such a virulent racist and you have this opportunity like mike just just throw your weight behind this guy we have this this flashpoint we can get this guy out and he refuses to do it even in a situation where it's like you're not asking you to like go campaign. It's just, just say a couple of words. Let's, let's use this rare opportunity. It's like you, like Barack Obama said it. It's like Michael Jordan, it's like Oprah. Like that's the list. That's the list. And when you have that kind of power, when this particular opportunity comes up, there, there is a feeling of like, Hey, Mike, you're speaking for a lot of people here. Use your voice and and him not using his voice is well within his rights, but it's also the community at large is within their right to be disappointed that he didn't yeah. do it. Yeah, I, I think. Well, I was I was just going to add, I guess my problem with him saying he didn't know enough about it at the time, you're a black guy in North Carolina and the incumbent is a racist. If there's a subject matter that you would be somewhat informed on, it would probably be that one. And and look, like you said, if he is apolitical, if he doesn't want to get into that, if he understands that it's going to cost him money, then fine. But, you know, it's also fine for people to take issue with that when you have so many people who come from similar backgrounds as he does who could use a boost every so often uh, in terms of the societal issues that were going on at that day. If, if they're frustrated at the fact that this guy who could wield some power here and, and could bring about some change is opting not to because it affected his already fairly thick bank account. I, I See, that's that's the problem, though. I don't think that the whole Republicans buy sneakers, too, thing is real. MJ said it in the doc, and I'm, I'm with him. That's just an off-the-cuff joke of a remark. I don't think he was trying to protect his sneaker dollars by av- avoiding that. I think he avoided it because he didn't want to get involved. Because quite frankly, back then, I, sneaker culture was pretty fairly new at that time. And I doubt that that many Republicans were buying sneakers back then anyway. <laughs> Fact. You know, <laughs> uh, I was actually going to say, based off the context of the times, you know, it's and I say this as someone who's born in 1990. So, you know, I can't really speak to actuality of what times were like at that moment. Um, but like this kind of the framing of the whole Jordan thing reminds me a little bit of, and I mean, it, it looks bad now because of now we know everything else that went on with him, but, uh, OJ Simpson, you know, during his peak fame, when he was arguably the, the most high profile black athlete on the planet or one of them, uh, he was famously apolitical as well. And in a way, Jordan sort of followed his blueprint in a sense, um, of just sort of staying out of it. And uh, you know, I, that's I do a think very good comparison. Like for those who like think that's strange because of what happened with OJ, that's a that's actually a really good call by Alex right there because yeah. that was the model of the African American nationwide spokesperson, and we really hadn't had until 1992 an African American American worldwide spokesperson in mm-hmm. any in any way until Jordan in the in the 92 Olympics. So it's a good that's a good call, Alex. 
Yeah. Well, and the other thing I was going to say is it's a little different to compare guys from the 90s to guys now. Because um, I think that now it's easier for someone like a LeBron James to log on to Twitter.com and quote tweet Donald Trump and say, you bum, you know, and, and yell at him for whatever. And you get that immediate validation of retweets and likes and positive comments your way and things of that nature. I I wonder if maybe there's a part of Jordan that just worried about what the reaction would be to him going political, you know, in a time when it was, I guess, different. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't, um, you know, it, it's all news, it, you know, back then rather than having social media where you can see what the average person or in his case, the average African-American thinks of what you think of what's going on. Instead, it's, you know, predominantly white voices uh, writing columns in newspapers, uh, writing the articles about him. You know, I I think that coming out in support, you know, maybe it it would have definitely helped the campaign there, but it it also might have had its own backlashes on him, particularly considering he played basketball in the Midwest, which like Chicago, not exactly a, you know, quote unquote, the Midwest, you know, like the, the more, uh, conservative parts of it, but you know, it, there's just, Here I feel Chicago, like there's a we lot call of that flyover country. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's just a lot of factors. It's, it's a very complex issue to discuss. I All think, right. But, let's, then let's close yeah. with where they opened. And it's interesting. The relationship with Kobe was the open of the show. It's so contradictory and paradoxical to every other aspect that we've seen out of Jordan. Right. We opened our conversation about just this incredibly, these myths he made up in his mind of someone thought Marley was better than him. And somebody, and yet here's the guy who actually might be. And there's the shots like he's going to take the game. He's going to go one on one and I'm going to put it on him. But at the same time, there's this Kobe version of the story of him being this incredibly helpful mentor, which seems to be really contradictory to everything else we've seen out of Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think what it really comes down to, and, and this was something that Kobe carried throughout his career, is that I think they, they both really respected the game. And if you were going to put in the work and actually really get after it, and, and if you're going to set the lofty goal of, yeah, I'm going to try to be the next Michael, and Michael sees that you're willing to put in the work and actually try to do such a thing, I think Michael really respected that to the point where I remember in his, at uh, Kobe's memorial, uh, Michael said that, you know, he, he saw him like a younger brother trying to steal his stuff. And, and the joke I made in, in that day's Locked on Lakers was like, hey, bring me back my fadeaway jumper, you know? And, and I, I really think uh, Michael saw that Kobe, you know, was, was bold enough and had the work ethic to, to really try to do it, even if he would eventually fail. Because he obviously, Kobe, you know, didn't become the next Michael Jordan. But the fact that, you know, Michael found that endearing and went out of his way to really help Kobe uh, try to attain that goal. I think that had everything to do with with how Kobe went about trying to to get there. Well, Anthony, I think this. I think the stealing my stuff uh, comments. I think that's the key to unlocking this mystery about why Jordan um, gravitated towards Kobe and didn't have that same uh, competitiveness that he had with everyone else. Because I think Jordan has a keen understanding that a facsimile. Will will always be lesser than the real thing, and mm-hmm. I think that may be how Jordan always viewed it. That this the real threat for Jordan was going to be a guy in the LeBron James mold that was just a different species altogether of basketball player, and uh, so I think I think there's there could be some element of that. Yeah, and I yeah, thought that yeah, was I- really. Oh, real, real quick, just want to say really wise of Kobe when he was reflecting on it to say when people compare me and MJ and say, you know, who would win, who's better one on one, who you got and Kobe being like, y'all need to realize, like, the reason I am who I am and the reason that I won as much as I won is a direct result of MJ and everything I learned from him. And it's like, whereas, yeah, a, a player in a different mold, such as LeBron, is, I think, a more interesting comparison because it's like Kobe was MJ 2.0 or whatever, you know, you want to call it. But so many similarities. You like line up their game tape together side by side and watch. It's identical. But I also think this is uh, an example of how this story is being presented in the documentary versus reality as well. Because in the in the documentary, we 
only see Kobe talking about Jordan in these glowing terms and, oh, he helped me out. He was very helpful and all this other stuff. The, the entire documentary is Jordan just cutting people down, cutting people down, cutting people down. And now we have this softening of Jordan. Like, oh, yeah, I saw this guy. He was kind of like the net. Yeah, I'm going to help him out. That's that. My, what came across to me was like Jordan saw Kobe. They have they're in that first all-star game. He's a 19 year old kid. And they're talking about him giving advice while they're standing next to each other. And it made it feel like. In that moment, he's giving a 19-year-old kid all of this great advice. But meanwhile, Jordan, in his eulogy of Kobe, was talking about how annoying Kobe was <laughs> and how much he bugged him over and over and over and over again until Jordan was like, finally, like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll help you out. Um, so, which speaks to Kobe's persistence, but also speaks to Jordan maybe not being so willing so easily to to help Kobe out so much that eventually you had to kind of work your way to that level, uh, which he ultimately did, and it's great. But I think the presentation of how it happened in the documentary left out a bunch of steps that that maybe Jordan wasn't quite as willing so early to to kind of help Kobe out as much as he did. I mean, is it worth noting too that this moment with Kobe that was referenced in the doc happened in 98, which Jordan right. knew at the time was going to be his last season, presumably. Uh, it seemed like he had that laid out well way. enough in advance. Um, yeah, and, you know, Kobe was no career. threat to him at that point, whereas the other guys, Kukoc, a threat to his job, sort of, or Scotty's job or whatever, whatever they wanted to call it. Drexler, a, you know, a, a threat to his claim to fame, you know, to his to his championship and Barkley, you know, same thing. You know, it seems like that's sort of the the thing to me is he probably just saw Kobe as like, oh, this is a kid. You know, he's coming up. He idolizes me. And he probably Kobe did probably bug the crap out of him and eventually get him to teach him some stuff. But I think ultimately the reason that Michael was willing to be hospitable to him is because he knew that. I mean, I, Michael had to know, you know, Kobe Bryant was going to be waiting for him in the finals. You know, there was no harm in letting him pick his brain. Uh, it, it was it was a harmless thing. And, you know, it's like the rare <laughs> the rare soft spot of Jordan, but only because he had already kind of resigned himself to not coming back again. So he already knew that. Yeah, he's he's RoboCop. He did the threat assessment. He was like, no threat. No yes, threat. Exactly. <laughs> we can take we can take it a step further. And Jordan, knowing that he was leaving the league, and said, "Oh, I'm going to impart all my wisdom on this kid out west." So there's a, the Bulls can't put it together and win without me. Like he's on his way out. Screw Jerry Krause. You know Scotty's gone. You know everybody else is gone. Screw the Bulls. I'm going to give my knowledge to somebody else on another team, not to Tony Kukoc. I'm going to give it to somebody else on another team, and we're we're going to screw the Bulls, and and they're just never going to win again. The the reincarnation theory of Michael Jordan. I love that, John. <laughs> well, it's also it's also you know if you're gonna if you're gonna have a myth and then have it continue to be built after you step away from the game. Isn't the best way to do that to have some guy who plays exactly like you, and 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 so like you're you're gonna leave this league and uh, hey while I'm gone I want you guys to continue thinking about me maybe there's a chance that the best player in the league plays a lot like me I think that would probably help Michael <laughs> it would probably yeah. be a net positive at the end of the day what do they always say imitation is the best form of flattery like yeah right hey, it was probably go. endearing <laughs> yeah it was, it was it was probably annoying for a while but it was also probably endearing that that you know that Kobe thought hey the best way to be the best player in the league is to play like Michael I'm sure Michael took that as a compliment that was probably a probably pro when he thought about it and 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 I think all the stuff you're talking about is also true you guys are talking about with like Kobe wasn't the threat that the other guys were during Co during Michael's prime and while he was still vying for championships and he still thought he was going to be in the league the next year. I think that's all a factor too. But I also think there's a big, the 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 big kind of thing that was left unsaid there was Michael really wanted the 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 best player in the league potentially to look a lot like him. Didn't it? it doesn't it kind of like make you think a little bit too if that trade. The rumored trade of Scottie Pippen basically for Tracy McGrady had gone down. What would have happened if Michael was teammates with McGrady? If he would have gotten the the mentorship uh, route like Kobe or like the scorn role like a coup coach? Like I, I think about that a lot about how Jordan would have treated McGrady had that trade actually gone down. 
I, I would probably guess Scorn because I don't think he wanted the best player in the league to be on the Bulls. Yeah. Like he wanted the Bulls to be the Bulls was going to be his thing. Right. Like he's probably really enjoyed uh, John Paxson's time as as GM. Right. Like he's really thoroughly enjoyed uh, how things have gone there. I would imagine that makes the Bulls that makes one ready. of them. Wait a sec. You just you just made me consider John Paxson's GM again after I got to watch another two hours of Bulls greatness. And we're like after what I've been through, how did Anthony Irwin bring Matt Peck back to like the the doldrums of his last years? It is a new day here in Chicago. Bulls fans are forward thinking. We're excited about Eversley. We're excited about our tourists. Uh, you know what? That's why I'm so happy that that Bulls front office news dropped as this doc was about to start because um, I, I think Bulls fans would have just been so jaded by all of this because it's like they keep living off of these glory days financially, you know, ticket sales, merch. Like the Bulls are a global brand because of this man, Michael Jordan, and the other pieces of the dynasty. And Bulls fans were getting really sick of them living off of that. They have not won. A ch- they've made one conference finals appearance since the dynasty broke up. And I think that the fact that in present day, as weird as things are with, with COVID-19 and the NBA shutdown, the Bulls are the one team making headlines because they're actually finally making changes. And Bulls fans are watching this doc saying, thank God, it's about time. Michael is going to come back and in, in, in just to beat the Bulls a few times under this new, <laughs> under this new front office. <laughs> All right. Well, that takes us to an hour, which is supposed to be 30 minutes, but it seems to be there's too much on these documentaries for us to not talk about. I would like to point out, it does seem to me that every single team seems to be on a tremendous winning streak right now. I've been watching the regional sports broadcasts of every team in the NBA. They all seem to be on about 11 or 12 game win streaks. Nobody's lost a game recently when airing on their home. TV. It's just a remarkable phenomenon. Flashback television. Uh, we'll be back with you next Monday with another Last Dance postgame show. T- Tuesday, Locked at NBA returns uh, with Wes Goldberg, David Ramil. Wednesday, John Corrales will be back with you with uh, Jake Madison. Thursday, I'll be with you. And then Anthony and Adam Otis with you on Fridays. The Your favorite NBA show, in your favorite NBA team it has a daily podcast that's continuing, whether it's by Alex on Locked on Knicks or Matt with Locked on uh, Bulls, along with Jordan Malley, his co-host, John Corrales, Locked on Celtics, Anthony Irwin, Locked on Lakers, or Doug Branson, Locked on Hornets. I'm David Locke. Hollinger and Duncan have got a new episode out for you as well as Chad Ford's been doing a bunch of redrafts. So right now, tell your smart device to go play the most recent episode of Hollinger and Duncan and go to BuiltBar.com to get make your own box, get $10 off with the promo code locked on. Have a good day.